0: Hope you'll take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 9. Last January, January the 12th of last year, we started our walk through the gospel of Mark and we spent 35 of our Sundays last year in this gospel. This morning we will pick up where we left off before Advent and Christmas, continuing this journey through this gospel and As I was thinking this week, and I went back and counted how many sermons have we had out of the Gospel of Mark, I saw we spent 35 weeks there last year, I thought it was appropriate to ask the question again, what's our goal? Why are we giving so much time to thinking about and trying to understand this one book of the Bible? Of course, there's many things we could say about why we approach the Scriptures this way, but... I figured I'd just say again what we stated last January, that our goal as we spend time in the Gospel of Mark is this, that we would see Jesus for who he really is, and that we would understand what it means for us to follow him as disciples. So just a reminder of our goal, as we come over the, you know, the course of the year back to the Gospel of Mark often, regularly, here's the goal, and I hope you would come in with us each week. I want to see Jesus more clearly. I want to know who he is, truly. And I want to know what it means to follow him as a disciple. It's a statement that we could say about any book of the Bible. Anytime we approach any book of the Bible, we could could list those two things as goals. What's unique about the Gospels is that as we go in, we're actually walking alongside the disciples who are on the same journey. This is what they're doing. They're trying to understand Jesus and trying to understand what it means to be his disciples. And what we've recognized over the course of the previous eight chapters is that often they aren't getting it right. The story of the disciples is often a story of clumsy faith. They have moments of doubt. They doubt Jesus care for them. They doubt his power. There are times when they question Jesus, wondering, does he really know what he's doing? We've seen stories like that, where they question whether or not he's making right decisions. I think as we say those things out loud, we recognize that for many of us, this is our story as well. That we can often be people of clumsy faith. People who are prone to doubt. People who are don't, prone to question. Wondering as we think over the the course of the things that we've seen and the things that we've endured. Does God really know what he's doing in our world and in our lives individually? We may be more like the disciples than we care to admit. But I'm glad that God in his sovereignty in a year like the year we've just walked through had us week in and week out looking at the gospel of Mark so we could see how Jesus reveals himself to see his miracles and be reminded of his power, to watch his interactions with people and to be reminded that he came for sinners like us, to hear his teaching, and also to hear what he says very explicitly about what it means to follow him, which is kind of where we ended at the end of chapter 8. We came to a place in the gospel where Jesus was saying some radical things about what it means to be his disciples. If we go back just a little further if you have your bible open you can look at the heading above verse 27 probably says something like Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ and this is a, a high point in the gospel Jesus asks his disciples who do people say that I am and then he asks them this question who do you say that I am and Peter speaks up and he says you are the Christ and Peter was right what we recognize is that while Peter was correct that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ, that Peter didn't fully understand what that meant. He and the other disciples expected a king who would establish a kingdom. But after that confession of who he is, Jesus takes an opportunity to tell his disciples what to expect. So there in that final section of chapter 8, he tells them, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Do you remember what Peter does? He rebukes him. Lord, may this never be. See, Peter thought he knew better what should happen than Christ. But the Lord tells him, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And by the way, if you're going to be my follower, you're going to suffer as well. So we see Jesus laying out for them what it means to count the cost. The cost of discipleship. Jesus tells them that if you're going to follow me it will cost you something. Which is a lot to process and maybe this is something you struggle with as well. That the call to follow Jesus is a call to come and die. To be willing to give it all. So how can we walk in? into that kind of discipleship? How can we follow Jesus even when it's hard? How can we follow Jesus even when it does not seem to make sense? I think the only way we do that is to have a clear view of Jesus and to be completely confident that he's worthy of being followed. As we come back to the text, we dive back into that process of seeing Jesus And understanding him and then recognizing that he is worthy of being followed, no matter the cost. And what's interesting is that after this hard conversation between Jesus and his disciples, one in which Peter's rebuked and Jesus lays out the cost of discipleship, Jesus does something very kind. He takes away three of his disciples and he shows shows himself to them in a way that they had never seen him. i you on the front end that this is very likely one of the most otherworldly accounts in the Gospels. May at times seem like something you would read in a fantasy novel. But we believe that it's true. And that it happened. That Jesus allowed his disciples to see something that would give them assurance. That would give them clarity. And I hope it does the same for us this morning. That we recognize more clearly who Jesus is, and that we'll be encouraged in our call to follow. So our text this morning is Mark chapter 9, we're going to read verses 2 to 13. Hope you'll follow along as I read. Hear the word of God. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant and tensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them, Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for You, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, for he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And then a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them to tell no one, what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, What do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. We certainly ask that God would add his blessing to the reading and to the preaching of his word. It's a wild story, isn't it? There's lots of themes woven in here and it's kind of hard to know where we should focus. My guess is you will only give me so much time. So let's focus on what I believe is the primary aim of this event. Jesus wants his disciples to have a clearer view of who he is. He wants them to see him rightly. So we're going to walk through the story. We're going to talk about what happened. Then we're going to consider four things that this event reveals to the disciples and to us about who Jesus is. And then towards the end, we'll ask and answer the question, if this is who Jesus is, then how should we respond? How should this view of Jesus change the way we think about 2021? How should it change the way we think about tomorrow? So that's where we're headed. Start by trying to get our head around the scene. I hope as you read the Bible and we encourage you to read through the New Testament over the next six months. And I hope as you read the Bible, you try to put yourself in the scene to understand what's going on and how the people feel and what's happening. We see here in verse 2, Mark says something that really informs a lot of what I've already alluded to. And then he tells us when the event takes place, he tells us it's after six days. Now, as we're reading through the Gospel of Mark, we go from event to event. And Mark doesn't always tell us how long it's been since the event before. And he, we don't always know even for sure if everything's chronological. He could change the order of events in order to accomplish the purpose of the book. But here he connects this event with what just happened. He tells us this is six days after Jesus has had this conversation with his disciples about the cost of discipleship six days after he had told his disciples that he would have to suffer and die so they're processing these things they're trying to understand what jesus means when he says that he's going to die they're trying to process what it means when he tells them that they may have to die it's in this period of processing these things that jesus takes peter and james and john and he takes them up on a mountain these three disciples what's often referred to as the inner circle, the three disciples who are closest in fellowship to Christ. The same three, by the way, who will be in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night when Jesus is betrayed and arrested. But before they are witnesses to his suffering, Jesus allows them to be witnesses of something amazing. They're witnesses of the revelation of, Of his glory. And I believe Jesus does this in part to prepare them to be able to endure what's ahead. And I'll say again, I hope that the view of Jesus that we see this morning prepares us to endure what lies ahead. Mark tells us he takes them up on a high mountain, which, by the way, almost every time we see high mountains in the Bible, something fantastic happens. High mountains are the places where people go and where God reveals himself, where God speaks. God told Abraham to take Isaac upon a mountain, to put him to death, and yet that's where Jesus revealed himself to Abraham in a way that he never could have expected. Jesus told Moses to go up on Mount Sinai, and it's there that God gave him the law and where God showed him his glory. God told Elijah to go up on a mountain, and that's where he saw most clearly and heard that still, small voice of God. 1 Kings chapter 19. There are other examples. Mountains are often places of revelation where God speaks and reveals himself to people. I'm not telling you to go camping, necessarily. I'm just telling you the pattern we see in the Bible. and that, I think it's significant that at this point, Jesus takes his disciples up on top of a high mountain, And then Mark, in his frustratingly simple way, I wish we had more details. He says this, And Jesus was transfigured before them. It's a word we don't necessarily use a lot. It means to be transformed or changed. It's actually the same word we have in Romans. that would be transformed in the renewing of our minds. The word that we have in the, in the Greek, in the original language, it's pronounced metamorpho. So we think of the word, a derivative of metamorphosis. We think of a caterpillar, goes through metamorphosis and becomes a butterfly. This word transfiguration is related, that. it's about change. What does it mean that Jesus was transfigured? Well, what Mark tells us is this, his clothes became radiant intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. That's what Mark tells us. Now, this event's recorded in two other Gospels, in Matthew and in Luke, and we get a little bit more information from the other Gospels. In Matthew 17, verse 2, Matthew records that he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became as white as light. Luke says it this way. The appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. What's going on? Well, Mark calls it a transfiguration. But it's not that his nature was changed. Jesus remains who he has always been, but his appearance has changed in such a way that more of his nature is revealed. This is important. What happens in this event is not a, a changing of Jesus. We've talked a lot about it over the last month. Jesus has always been God. He will always be God. He took on flesh and became a man. In this moment, the nature of who Jesus is isn't changing. But more of his nature is being revealed for the disciples to see. You know, as we read the Bible, often the presence of God, the glory of God is often described as being Light. So we think again about Moses on Mount Sinai. He gets a glimpse of the glory of God. Do you remember what happens when he sees the glory of God? He comes down off the mountain and his face was glowing. As a result of being in the presence of God, he radiated light. Something similar happens here, but with one important distinction. Jesus isn't dazzling white with radiating light because he's been in the presence of God. Jesus has these intensely white clothes, and he's radiating light because he is God. It's not that he wasn't God and now is. His nature hasn't changed. He is who he has always been. But it's as if his flesh was a veil that hid the deity. But in this moment, the veil is pulled back. And for the first time, the disciples get a glimpse that this man who we have been with and followed is more than meets the eye. There's more under the surface. They get a glimpse of glory. Which, by the way, I think gives further insight to a verse that we've read quite a bit over the last month. John chapter 1, verse 14. Remember John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I don't think this verse is exclusively about the transfiguration because I think John saw the glory of Christ in other ways through his character and his nature. But this is an event you don't forget. And I have no doubt that as John's writing, John chapter 1, and he says, I have seen his glory, that this is part of what he's talking about. I know that he's God. I've seen a revelation of it. And Jesus took the disciples on this mountain and helped in part to help them understand this truth and this is the first of the four things that I want us to consider this morning that Jesus is not a man, he is God. It's something we've talked about quite a bit over the advent season. And something that Jesus has revealed to his disciples in different ways. He's done the miracles. He's taught them. He's claimed, I can forgive sins. He's claimed in so many different ways to be God. But this is a new kind of revelation, isn't it? Where they see this one who they know so well, transfigured, changed, shining like the sun. And think about how this should inform the way the disciples respond to Jesus. How they think about what he says and how they process what he does. This is not just a man. This is not just a teacher. It's not even just a king. He's God. And for them to consider that to know jesus and to hear from jesus is to know god and to hear from god that's that's different isn't it than if jesus were simply a a prophet what they may recognize now more than they did before is how worthy he is of worship and of honor he's god he reveals this he reveals his glory and i think it's also in some way a preview of things to come We can go to Revelation and we're told that Jesus will return and he'll return, what, in glory. We're told in Habakkuk chapter 2 that one day his glory will fill all the earth. That points us ahead and what the disciples see here. Before they walk into a time where Jesus suffers and dies and they may be tempted to doubt and to question, he gives them a glimpse of things to come. Of glory. And if the story stopped right there, it's a magnificent revelation. But the story doesn't stop. He's transfigured, they see him shining, and then we read this in verse 3. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Okay, let's try to process that, get the picture in our minds. They see Jesus, they're in awe, and my guess is for a moment you can't take your eyes off of him, but then they notice he's not alone. Two other people with him, and we don't know how, but they recognize him. They had never seen pictures, but they recognize, maybe they were introduced, Elijah and Moses. And if you know your Bibles, you know those guys weren't around and hadn't been around for a while and that they were never around at the same time before. These are two of the great men of God from generations past who had died long before, but now they stand there in the flesh and engaged in conversation with Jesus. Can I encourage you for a moment to not write this off as Bible story, but to consider that these were real men <laughs> who were taken up on a real mountain, with someone they really knew. And all of a sudden he shone like the sun and they saw with him two men that they had heard about their entire lives. And the question maybe we should be asking is, okay, God's gonna send two people from the past to, to have a conversation with Jesus, why these two? Why Moses, why Elijah? And the text doesn't tell us that explicitly but what we do know is that these two men represent in a significant way the work of God among his people up to this point. Moses is the one who brought the law of God to the people of God. Elijah is considered one of the greatest prophets of all time, maybe only referenced more by Isaiah, but Elijah is often held up as the, the, the one of the main prophets and So they represent the work of God, the law, and the prophets. And yeah, here they are, back from the dead, in the flesh, in conversation with Christ. And Mark doesn't tell us what they're talking about, but thankfully Luke does. Go over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, and verse 30, and we read that two men were talking with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. What were they talking about? They were talking about what Jesus had come to accomplish. They were talking about the very thing that Jesus had just told his disciples about. They were talking about his death. And of course, this is what God had been laying the foundation for through the law. This is what God had been laying the foundation for through the prophets. This is what the law and the prophets pointed towards that Jesus would come and he would be that perfect sacrifice. Just to say it again, what we see is a representation of the law and the prophets in conversation with the one who came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Which is to say the whole Old Testament is pointing towards him and now the Old Testament has shown up Acknowledging him and what he's come to do. Jesus at the end and the fulfillment of the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the promises and the prophecies. This is the second thing that we have to acknowledge. Jesus is the glory of God in flesh, he is God. Secondly, he's not just part of the story, he is the point of the story. He's the climax, he's the central figure. Everything else points to him. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and he says this explicitly in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 17. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Paul would later write in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God find their yes in him it was all moving towards him and now we see moses the great leader of israel affirming who jesus is and why he came and elijah that great prophet affirming who jesus is and why he came and i have no doubt that for the disciples this brings it all together what jesus comes to do is not different than judaism It's a fulfillment. Jesus doesn't dismiss Moses or the prophets. He arrives as the one to whom they pointed. And really practically, here's what I want you to consider. This helps us recognize that we do not have two Bibles. We have one Bible. We have one story. We have one central figure. It all points to him. And it's in him that salvation is accomplished for people of every generation who believe by faith. If you're reading your Bible, reading the Old Testament, no, it's not a different story. Moses and the prophets, they're all pointing to Jesus. He's not just a man, he's God. He's not just part of the story, he is the point of the story. And third, Jesus isn't just another prophet He is the Son. So we read verse 4, and we see Jesus and Moses and Elijah. We could make the mistake of thinking these are three equals. I think there's a sense of that in the the response of Peter. Verse 5 Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, it's good that we are here. Let Let us make three tents one for Moses, one for you, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Don't you love Peter? And remember we said at the very beginning that Peter probably is the one who gave all this information to Mark, that the gospel of Mark is actually probably a gospel of Peter written by Mark. I love that Peter tells on himself here. i was scared. I didn't know what to say. But here's what I said. Maybe, maybe we should make tents for all of you, for all three of you. And... But what does that even, why why would that come to mind? Well, Remember, Peter believes that Jesus is Messiah. He believes Jesus is going to establish a kingdom. Maybe he wants a place for that to begin. It seems like things are happening. Is this going to be our capital? We think of the Old Testament. Jesus came, or God came and he dwelt among his people in a tent, in a tabernacle. So Peter says, "Let's, let's build a tabernacle here. We'll do one for you and, and one for Moses. And one and he's just talking, is what it seems. But maybe you can understand his thinking a little bit. He wants to build a place of residence, a place of establishment for the kingdom of God on earth. But of course, Peter doesn't understand that God's plan and the coming kingdom is greater than what he has in mind. It's bigger than this. And in the process, he makes this mistake of at least implying that Jesus and Moses and Elijah are in the same category. He gets corrected, not by Jesus, not by Moses, not by Elijah, not by James or John, but by God the Father himself. We're told in verse 7, that a cloud overshadowed them. What do clouds represent in the Bible? Often the presence of God. Remember in the wilderness, the people followed the cloud. Again, Mount Sinai, the cloud comes down and God speaks out of the cloud. Here they're on this mountain. Peter's talking and a cloud comes over them. And a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. We hear God speak. And it's words that should be familiar to us. We've heard them before, but with a slight variation. Remember, these are very similar to the words that Jesus that God spoke out of heaven when Jesus was baptized. At at that time, it was addressed to Jesus: You are my beloved Son. In whom I am well pleased. Now he speaks not to Jesus, but to the disciples. And he tells them, This is my beloved Son. And then he says this listen to him. Stop here for a second and think again about the clumsy faith of the disciples, their doubts, their fears, their questions. The fact that that Peter, just six days before, had rebuked Jesus and told him, you don't know what you're talking about. You will never suffer and die on my watch. And now he's on a mountain. Jesus is glowing. Prophets of old have shown up. And God speaks out of the clouds and says, this is my son. Listen to him. This is my son greater than Moses, greater than Elijah, my only begotten. Listen to him. Which I think applies to everything Jesus says. Not I think I know. That's what Graham always says. I don't think I know. This applies to everything Jesus says. But maybe it's a specific callback to that most recent conversation. Jesus has told them, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and God says, listen to him. It's true. Reminds me of Hebrews one. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. That idea of listen to him, it's a could be translated obey him. Submit to him. Follow him. God's making this clear. The Son is to be heard and obeyed. We've seen all these affirmations about who Jesus is, and I think Mark kind of adds an exclamation point with that last phrase, verse 8. Suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Moses and Elijah were important, but their work was done. Jesus came as the son of God who will fulfill the work of salvation. Jesus alone is the one who saves. All this happens. And then suddenly, it's over. And you have to imagine that the heads of the disciples were spinning. They've seen the glory of Jesus revealed. They saw Elijah and Moses, men who they had heard of their entire lives. And now they saw them and heard them speak. They heard the very voice of God out of the clouds. And if you think these are the kinds of things that happen in the Bible all the time, know that this was just as amazing to them as it would be to us. It is like something out of a fantasy novel. A man who radiates light, people back from the dead, voices from heaven. And as quick as it started, it was over. And The next thing Mark tells us is that they're headed down the mountain. And it's in this that we see the fourth thing that we should recognize about Jesus. Verse nine. As they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Have you ever had a question, or excuse me, a a secret that you just couldn't stand to keep? Imagine being the disciples in this situation. After all they've just seen and heard, and Jesus says, don't tell anyone. We've seen this throughout Mark. People who were healed, and he said, don't tell anyone. There are things that are only to be understood after the resurrection. This will make more sense later. But yet, he brought them. He wanted them to see this. This was for their good, for their encouragement. He knew that these were the leaders among the disciples, the ones who would need to show trust. He shows them these things. They're trying to process it. They have questions. They still don't understand what it means that he would rise from the dead. As a side note, Consider that we don't always understand what God's doing. And we don't always understand what He's up to. But I think stories like this are reminders that we may not understand, but we can trust Him. Now, when we think about the death and the resurrection of Christ, we understand why He came, why He died. It's hindsight for us, and we have the revelation of the completed scriptures. The disciples didn't understand, even though maybe they should have. We will not always understand what God's doing, but be reminded, even if you don't understand, you can trust him. He has a plan for your salvation, he has a plan for your life, and it may involve suffering. But you can trust him. The disciples had questions. As they come down the mountain, they're trying to sort out what they've seen, trying to piece together what they already know trying to process why did we see Moses, why did we see Elijah? And they remember something, and they ask the question, verse 11, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now this wasn't original with the scribes, this comes from the prophet Malachi, the, the last prophet of the Old Testament, the last prophet who spoke before those 400 years of silence prior to the birth of Christ. Christ. And one of the very last things written in our Old Testament, one of the last pieces of revelation from God, Malachi 4, we're told that before the end comes, Elijah will return. Now here are the disciples. They know this prophecy, Elijah's coming. And they just saw him. And they don't ask a direct question, but they, they hint at the real question. Why did the scribes say that before the end comes, Elijah will come? I think they're fishing, right? Jesus, did we just see a sign? Jesus answered them in verse 12. He says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Jesus does something interesting. He answers their question, but he sandwiches something that seems unrelated in the middle. We'll come back to that. First, let's look at the outer sides of that. He acknowledged that Elijah's coming again, but he actually says he has come. And when we recognize that he's talking about a, a different appearance of Elijah than the one they've just seen. He's talking about one who came in the spirit of Elijah, a prophet who cried out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. He's talking about John the Baptist. And we know this most clearly because of Matthew's account. Matthew 17, it starts in verse 11. He says the same things that Mark says, but then at the end he says this. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. See, John the Baptist came and he was the fulfillment of the prophecy of the coming of Elijah. And he restored all things in the sense that he ushered in the ministry of Jesus. And of course, we talked in chapter 6 about the death of John the Baptist to the hand of Herod. They did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. What's the point? He answers their question about Elijah, but he doesn't stay there. What he does is he says, yes, that prophecy has been fulfilled. And by the way, Let me remind you of another prophecy. Verse 12, the son of man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. There's a lot there, but I think this is the heart of Jesus' response. I think this is what he primarily wants them to hear. Yes, prophecies were made and prophecies come true. The prophecies about Elijah were true and have been fulfilled there are also prophecies that the Son of Man will suffer many things and be treated with contempt, and these must also be fulfilled. Now what prophecies is he talking about? Maybe Isaiah? He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It's the last thing I think we see in this text that we must recognize about Jesus. He's not just a teacher or a prophet, he is a savior. He's the one who came to suffer and to die. He's already told them this and he tells them again. And still they don't understand. And perhaps you understand their lack of understanding as you consider all these things together. How could the one who reveals the glory of God be the one who has to die? How could the one who's greater than Moses and greater than Elijah Who never had to die but was taken up into heaven. Why would Jesus, the one who is greater, have to die? How could the one to whom all the scriptures point as the fulfillment of all the promises of the people of God. Why would he die? How could the very son of God have to die? It Seems unbelievable and yet. You know this to be true. It's because he's the glory of God revealed. And it's because he's the only perfect Son of God that he is the one who must die. His death was the only death that could accomplish what we needed. Jesus is God. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises and prophecies. Jesus is greater than any other prophet. Jesus is the very Son of God. And he came and he took on flesh. And he died, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of your sins, so that you can be reconciled to God. He died to accomplish the plan that was foreshadowed by the law, to fulfill the hope that was promised by the prophets. Four things. I told you our goal is to, to see Jesus for who he is. We've seen four things He's God. He's the point of the story. He's greater than the prophets. He's a savior. Which leaves us with the final question. If this is who Jesus is, then how do we respond? And hopefully as we've gone, you've picked up for yourselves some of the so what. The first thing that must be said, must always be said, is that because of who Jesus is, our first response, every one of us, must respond by repenting of our sins and trusting Him as our Savior. And if you've never done that, then you're not a recipient of the salvation He came to accomplish. See, you have sin that separates you from God. And there's only one way that your relationship with God could be reconciled, that you could be spared from the wrath that you deserve. Someone had to pay the price for your sins and there was only one person who could so God himself took on flesh. We know it was God. His glory was revealed. He died. and The scriptures are clear that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. We must repent and believe. It's the first thing that must be said. Let me also acknowledge this. That while most of us, I think, that are here or maybe listening online, most of us have repented. We are followers of Jesus. Many of us, like the disciples, are people of clumsy faith. Which is to say, we have doubts. We have fears. We have questions. And we need the same thing that the disciples needed. We need a a greater understanding of Jesus. And we need it constantly. So we must be in the Word. We must be together, we must come and be reminded over and over and week in and week out and day after day who Jesus is and that he can be trusted. Because this year might bring seasons that you do not expect. And you will need this reminder that he can be trusted. The answer for our doubts and our uncertainties is to know that we have a God we can trust. And we know that we can trust him because he has revealed himself to us. He came and lived among us. He came keeping his promises, showing us that he is a promise keeper. And he also came making new promises promises that he will come again, promises that he will make all things new. He will never leave us or forsake us. And that one day, all who believe will see him in his glory and be changed. we should recognize that the transfiguration is a preview, a glimpse of things to come. And maybe you hear a story like this and you think it's too wild to be true. I get it. Maybe it would help, and I'll end with this. Peter was there on the mountain with Jesus. He saw it. And then he had time to process. He had years to process what he had seen. And then when he wrote his second epistle, 2 Peter, he talked about this event. 2 Peter chapter one, Peter's writing exhorting them to trust God. He says, make your calling and election sure. Trust Jesus. And then he says this, starting in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. We were with him on the holy mountain. This is after The cross, this is after Jesus had left. This is when Peter is starting to experience what it really means to experience the cost of discipleship. He says, this wasn't a myth. I'm not making this up. I will die for this. I saw it. And then he says this, and this is amazing. He says, I saw it with my own eyes, but know this, you have something better than that. Verse 19, we have a prophetic word more fully confirmed than an eyewitness account to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit a lot here. Peter says, I was there and I saw it. I saw his glory. And here's what I know based on that experience. The prophecies are true. The promises are true. The scriptures are true. Peter writes to believers and says, keep following, keep trusting, pay attention. As a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, keep paying attention. Peter had his doubts, he had his questions, but he saw enough to know this God keeps his word. The promises are true, the word of God is true, the story is true, which means we have hope. For those who are in Christ, no matter what this year brings, We have hope. This is good news.